On this episode of AvTalk, aerospace journalist John Walton joins us for a wide-ranging discussion about aircraft and airlines new and old. And we speak with Joe Duvall, the chief test pilot at Honeywell Aerospace, about what it's like to fly a 757 with an engine attached to the fuselage, and some of the other interesting projects he's working on. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode 31 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and, well, I guess sometimes, because it's not your first time on the show, John Walton. Welcome, gentlemen, hello, from John. central France. Bonjour. So, Jason, you, I don't know how you managed this, but you wandered your way from New York to John's house in central France, and I assume you're both enjoying yourselves mightily while, while I sit here and record in Chicago. So, A, I'm jealous, and B, thanks for making the time. Yeah, the struggle is real right now. Um, I just have to put my glass of wine down, but I got here, I left Friday afternoon, got here Saturday afternoon, I guess after almost 20 full hours of travel. But miraculously, I made it to France without one hiccup. There was no strike by the airline. There was no strike by air traffic control. No strike by the trains for the most part. And here I am, knee deep in cheese, bread and wine. And the reason why you can hear some outside noises, including possibly a chicken, is that my house is under one of the entrances to the French version of the Machamplet Loop, which is the low altitude, high speed training And yet I have not seen one low-altitude, high-speed airplane go by. So if you hear a plane noise, that's what that is. If it's other noises, it's because we're trying to get one of the plane noises. Yeah. There's a goat, or what is it? Not a goat. There's a goat? There's There's a a donkey? Somewhere a donkey, chicken, cat, apparently. So this is, I guess, the most stereotypical central France location that it was there some sort of casting involved <laughs> there was not <laughs> you know, no, we, uh, we need a donkey we need a goat we need a chicken we need planes yes yes these are the essentials we need plenty of cheese and bread and when john was buying the house you know he, he was like you know the realtor goes how many bedrooms how many beds? He goes, no 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 i want to be close to planes and we need a goat pretty much well i wanted to be halfway between right. paris and toulouse Right, you know, I want to be able to get up to Paris for, for various aviation things, down to Toulouse to go see Airbus whenever I need to. And so I picked a spot in the middle that I knew and liked. What's not to like? I can think of nothing that is there that I do not like. So I'm jealous and let's just move on. Shall we move on to introducing who John is and why he happens to be joining us for the podcast? Probably a good idea. Yeah. This is John Walton with us here today. He is the deputy editor of Runway Girl Network, which covers all things airplane passenger experience related. Say hi, John. Hello, John. Okay, that was very literal, but I'll take it. Welcome back. Thank you. I believe last time we were sitting in a hotel room in Japan. This is very different. With with no windows. And yeah. this is this is much better. It yeah. had a window, but it looked at a brick wall. <laughs> Here we have a fifty kilometer view over the Valley of the Loire. Which it's, is it's pretty nice. A little nicer. Yeah. 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 And since the last time we spoke, John, you were on last time and you were visiting the MRJ program, and we can safely say that that there's no real update to the MRJ program. Well, some management has been shuffled around because that happens like hourly. Oh, I got that PDF too. Oh, yeah, yeah. No changes in the MRJ program since we last visited Japan. Yep. So that's been our MRJ update. I'm impressed that they have not lost customers yet since the last time that we were in Japan. Do they have many to lose? They've got a few hundred planes ordered. Eh. You know, it's it's not not Jason, your excitement about the MRJ program is it's palpable. It's palpable. Yeah. Look, I'm excited about the MRJ program. I'm always excited when more comfortable regional jets enter the fleet. Because my closest airport here is Lyon, which is a nest pit of Bombardier CRJs. 
It's wherever they go to, to breed, apparently, because every time I try and fly somewhere, I end up on one of those. My particular recent favourite has was the time that the outsourced local ground handling company failed to mention in any way at any point before people were lining up on the tarmac for the CRJ that it was a CRJ and so that the, no one could bring on hard-sided luggage, which was less than ideal. So um, French efficiency. Well, there's a lot of efficient things about France. You know, I mean, I live in the middle of the countryside and I have to get a bit of fibre, but the ground handling at Lyon Airport is not one of those things. Leaving the Lufthansa flight attendant to bellow in three separate languages, which was quite impressive that you had to, you know, if you had a hard-sided luggage, you would have to gate check it. But, but yeah, so any time that we get a promise, a mere sniff of a nicer regional jet that might in fact have somewhere to put for me to put my luggage, I am thrilled, overjoyed. So um, still I, waiting on that Delta C series. Yeah, yeah, any day now. You know me, I love the C series. Where I'm just three hours from Geneva Airport here, and uh, I've driven there to to fly out a couple of times, and that's a that is a nice trip on that C series. That's that's a pleasant ride. So speaking of Swiss, let's talk about Lufthansa's group new recent, I was yesterday, their new order for, let's see what we've got here. We've got a few 777-300ERs for Swiss. Two of them, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Two for Swiss, two 777 freighters for Lufthansa cargo, and about a dozen Airbus A320 families, six CEOs and six options for NEOs. Well, no, they converted the options to fixed yes. orders, I believe. I think that's, that's, that's the way around. Correct, correct. And it's, it's one of those sort of slightly mealy-worded press releases, that, if I'm right. It's like, up to 12, of which six. So what's happening to the reigning six? Like, you, you count to 12, but are those other six actually going to happen? It seems to be a little bit, a little bit questionable at any rate. But, yeah, um, six A320s that will be delivered depending on availability this year. So basically, if they have extra planes sitting around... Lufthansa Group will take them. Yes, at the uh, the Toulouse Gliding Club or the uh, <laughs> Hamburg Sailplane Facility. Meanwhile, Austrian, another part of the Lufthansa Group, just took another 777-200 left over from Aeromexico, which just retired That's right. its entire 777 fleet. And it's got a special livery. Yeah. It's got uh, 60 painted on the back for celebrating the 60th anniversary of, I guess, the airline? I, I don't know. I'm just reading this tweet as I see it. But hey, that's good. Right. And, and look, if anyone follows me on Twitter, you know I have not been the greatest fan of the new Lufthansa livery. I actually don't mind this new Austrian livery. I mean, it's... It, it, the new, new one. The new, I'm new, pretty sure new, they weren't even done one. painting the fleet to the old new livery. Yeah, the old new livery was on where they just took away the blue engines, right? If memory serves. And this one... They put my Austrian It became much more red. Right. And, well, you know, I'm a, a, a quiet socialist in the middle of France. Um, so, you know, anytime there's a red plane going around, that makes, that makes me happy. But... You put big letters on the side of a plane, and, and I'm delighted, right? I was always a fan of that thin air livery. Um, I, I don't mind the Swiss one. You know, the bigger the letters, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, so the, the new new livery goes back to white engines with a bit of a more of a splash of red on the tail. And then the letters are quite big, but it also has, and I don't know, and I haven't seen any information from the airline yet, about what is the makeup. It, there are people dancing on this particular plane, the registration for anyone who wants to, to look it up and we'll put a picture in the show notes is O-E-L-P-F. And, and there's people, as it's, yes, as, they said in the- as they're calling it. And so there's people dancing and it looks like the image of the people is made up perhaps of smaller images. And I, I forget exactly what you call that, where you, you take like a bunch of mosaic images and, and they make one big image. I think it's called a mosaic. Yeah. There's a special name for it. Right. But the real question, of course, like is, each... Ian, what does the Papa Fox say? 
Yes. So, <laughs> so that'll be interesting to to get a, a closer picture of. The the only picture I think we have right now is the one from Hong Kong where it was in in for rework and test flights. So hopefully we'll get some more close in images soon. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But I mean I think there's there's some interesting context in this in this order by the Lufthansa group, right? Which you know, there's profitability going on at Swiss. It was, I think, both Swiss and Lufthansa cargo were about ten percent profitability or something. Which look, there are a lot of airlines in North America minting money right now, but in Europe, it's been a little less, um, I guess, rosier picture, and not just because Air France keeps going on strike. So, hats off to the Lufthansa group, and they're doing some smart top-up orders of these, I guess, of end-of-line last-season model aircraft. Right before the, before the new ones get released, you know, before the triple seven X arrives, you know, Boeing is still trying to fill that uh, that production gap, and you know, Airbus also wants to produce some A three twenty COs to avoid producing A three twenty Neo gliders. So yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting time. Yeah. Um, if you happen to be an airline Delta that loves taking some very cheap late model last generation aircraft that you plan to fly, fly for 40, 50 years. And if you put the right amount of money into it and the right amount of planning, your passengers will never know that it's actually a 20-year-old 777. They'll yep. go on board and say, wow, this plane's brand new. Yep. Again, Delta. I forget somebody was on Twitter this week and they said that their their mom had flown this brand new A320 on Delta. And he told his mom, no, mom, that, that plane's 20 years old. That was Ben Berup, who is here, yeah, was, yeah. here in, uh, well, not quite in France, he's in Monaco at the moment, but bonjour Ben. And I think we keep hearing this from people who fly these refitted Delta uh, aircraft. Um, you know, that's a Zodiac Aerospace product. If memory serves, it was originally called Product Amber, was then folded into the product that they called Isis. Um, for obvious reasons, that was renamed. Well, for obvious reasons, for anyone who watches the news. And yeah, so it's, it, it looks super futuristic, right? Those overhead pods with the call button and the lights and everything. It looks very Star Trek. Yeah, it's um, it, great. It, it, Delta does a great job with this and should be commended for investing in the passenger experience in that way. Now, you mentioned Air France. I'm going to make a, a shoddy attempt at a transition here. France is in the air. There is a lot going on with Air France this week, isn't there? Sure is. I think that's an understatement. Yeah. If we want to call it that. So, as I mentioned, I am in France now, and I was strike free on my way in now, mostly because I flew Aer Lingus, and they weren't on strike, nor was the local airport. But Air France, I mean, the French culture in general is all about strikes, whether it be the airport, the trains, the airlines. What else goes on strike around here? Everything? Well, look, I mean, the, the French corporate culture is not the same as corporate culture as, in, as elsewhere in, in the world, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon world. You know, people here have terms and conditions and benefits to their jobs. We have a 37 and a half hour standard work week, and there's a French perspective about quality of life. And it certainly feels to people who are visiting from, from the US and from the UK and, and indeed Australia and New Zealand, places where there's not a sort of, I guess, a, a labor, such a, a strength of labor unions that the French war is on strike. Because uh, they are. There's uh, literally a calendar <laughs> of the entire summer with red dots of days when the French are on various strikes, and it is more days on than off. Uh, no, the, it's it's two days of seven that the French are on the uh, French SNCF, which is the uh, Société Nationale de Chemin de Fer, which is the French National Railway Company. Um, the, the Amtrak, or British Rail of, of France, is on strike. Um, and part of that is that they are 
trying to draw a line in the sand and avoid the privatisation problems that have been plaguing the UK. I mean, just this week, what was it? People were being advised not to travel to Gatwick Airport by train because of the overcapacity issues. It must be very frustrating if you're travelling to France. Extremely. Um, as a non-French speaker in particular. And suddenly, you know, you're like, well, what, what do you mean I can't know what trains are going to be on until 5.30 the night before? But there are people who are trying to preserve the infrastructure which has been built over generations and do not want it to be destroyed in the same way that other infrastructure Well, to get back on track, Air France's CEO up and quit because he was so fed up with the lack of progress being made. Well, both that and the fact that um, he, he called a referendum on his approach or the union's approach and he lost. So he's gone. So right now Air France does not have a CEO. They are continually on strike, seemingly going nowhere. And even though they do not have a CEO, they're still striking, even though there are no negotiations going on. There's no CEO, and they're just doing it out of principle? Yes, that did that, that particular decision to continue the strike without a CEO I did feel a little bit... Yeah, so moral of the story, avoid Air France this summer. Avoid, really, I don't want to say avoid France, because you shouldn't. But no, do, plan, do, do come to France. Plan very, very carefully. I plan carefully by flying Aer Lingus into a smaller airport that doesn't have a history of going on strikes. But it's tough, man. It's tough flying to France. And I think one of the larger problems in Europe is that there are very few hubs that make you think, oh yes, I would like to fly into that. Right. If I'm quoting the ones I like, I like Munich very much. Well, Munich is very efficient. Vienna is good. Zurich is good. Geneva is a little little hidden gem, especially if you can if if you're coming from New York or connecting through New York. Yeah, that, Geneva's that, great. That Geneva Swiss Air operation is a real gem. But um, yeah, it it can be very difficult in terms of uh, figuring out which hub to connect through. So I think the question now is, where does Air France go from here? And and John, I know that I you think. you and Jason have been spending the week trying to figure out a new direction for Air France. Yes. Well, I mean, it, it, it has been a topic of, com- of much conversation, and it's one that I don't think either of us have a magic answer to. You have competing interests in that it is a legacy carrier with very high cost base. It is also partly government-owned, which very rarely helps an airline um, in terms of being I'll tell you. The- <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, Italy is on strike right now That's as well. So- yeah. The entire country? Wow. Well, I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, you know, the the staff have have not been remunerated in the way they want to be remunerated, and they have the right to withdraw their labour. Um, that is a, that is a right that you have here. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is. I know what the answer is not, and the answer is not a rooftop bar. Oh no! I, you know, we were talking about this the other day, and we're both kind of shocked that there hasn't been more uh, more demonstration or striking over the creation of June. It feels like the kind of thing that their employees on mainline Air France would be riding over. It, it has surprised me that there has not been a sudden, oh, what do you mean we, we, we parked a tug behind the pushing back A320 and have lost the keys to, so that your June Oh, you know what? They, they probably don't think it's an airline. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you it, don't strike against a rooftop bar. It's a way of life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I'm not sure if... Did you guys talk about this after the Aircraft Materials Expo? But uh, June came to the Passenger Experience Conference. Well, we did not talk about this. Which was a uh, little bit of someone being thrown in front of some lions of the, you know, assembled Passenger Experience journalists who, which we say, did not receive the rooftop bar branding in, in the light which I think it was enthusiastically received within Air France. There was a very clear segment of journalists who received that well, and none of them are in the aerospace industry. Right. Yes. 
Yes. I mean, if you're writing for, we'll call it a popular kind of lifestyle or, or design press, it was well received. Sure. I mean, it's, it's I don't know the uniform. You know, it's, uh, the, the, the concept of June being, um, and I, I talked to the, to the folks from June afterwards. There are some really good arguments about June being basically a little test bed for Air France, right? But then call it Air France Lab or something. Right, sort of make it based on that rather than oh, actually, it's a lifestyle brand. It's for millennials. And look, I'm, I'm a millennial. Jason, are you officially a millennial? Oh yes. Yeah, we see through this airlines. Right, we see you. We know that your random pandering to millennials is not particularly. Well, what what pissed me off the most about it is if you're flying from France or, or from Paris to to Barcelona, you don't have a choice. No, you end up on June because for Air France does not fly at Mainline anymore. Right. So it doesn't matter who you are, you're flying June whether you want to or not. Precisely. It's not like the old days with Song, where you could have flown Delta to West Palm Beach, or you could have flown Song to West Palm Beach. I would have flown Song. Exactly. They had television. Exactly. That was a thing. But no, if you want to fly to Barcelona or whatever, Lisbon. or Lisbon or one of the other destinations they've expanded to, Fortaleza. too bad, you're yeah. on June. Yeah. Yes. Um, all of which is to say there is, there is no real answer for Air France. You know, if if you have to fly to or around France, my personal advice is to try and book a hop flight, which is sort of Air France regional, and that's coded A5. Those are still running during the strikes. Alternatively, if you are traveling on a day that is not one of the railway strike days, you can travel by train. Um, if, if you're not familiar with the amount of high-speed rail across Europe, that's a very uh, pleasant and effective way here on the Rail Talk podcast. But no, it, it's a tricky summer to be traveling around Europe, especially if you're going anywhere near France. And if you are a person who likes to cut it close in terms of connection timings, in terms of unlinked ticket bookings, perhaps this is not the summer to do that. Perhaps this is the summer to try something else. Yes, indeed. Let's take a break. And Jason and I sat down with Joe Duval, who is the chief test pilot for Honeywell Aerospace. And he talked to us about all sorts of things, including flying directly at a mountain. So we'll take a quick break, and Jason and I will be back with Joe. Chief test and then pilot we'll be back. and generally cool dude. And generally cool dude. So we'll talk with him, and then we'll be back in just a little bit. So stay with us. Welcome back. Jason and I are joined by Joe Duvall, who is the chief test pilot for Honeywell. And Joe gets probably some of the most exciting flying because he's done things like fly a 757 with an engine attached to the outside of the aircraft. He's with Jason in the plane has flown toward a mountain, but not into a mountain, which is a very important distinction, I am told. Extremely important distinction. (laughs) Joe, thank you so much for joining us. We're really happy to talk to you, and we appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I do appreciate it. Thank you. So I mentioned you're the chief test pilot, and I would love a fuller explanation about what a chief test pilot does at Honeywell Aerospace. Sure, yeah. You know, we have so many things that Honeywell offers and designs and builds and and makes for aircraft, so one of the great things about our job here is that we get to, you know, help develop and certify all of those products, which really, you know, it runs the gamut from the front to the back of an, of an airplane. And we're not testing the airplanes. I mean, if you were talking to somebody that was at a manu, an airplane manufacturer that was a, 
a test pilot, they might be a, they have a little bit different job when they're testing a brand new airplane. But what we get to do is test all the uh, products that we make that go onto the airplanes. And in that, that, you know, that provides a pretty diverse job. I mean, we get, you know, day in and day out, we're working on, on many different things. We have a, as you mentioned, we have this 757 with an engine on the, a test engine that gets mounted on the side of it. And that engine might vary, you know, we have many different, different models of engines. We can, we can test any kind that we make, but we might also be traveling all over the world, testing a, a satellite communication system or, or airborne weather radar, or, you know, in the data link systems, which are, which are pretty active right now. So you can imagine that it just, it varies from, from day to day, what we get to do. The other part about it is because we, a lot of our work, I, I mentioned flying around the world, but a lot of our work is done right here out of our home base, which I'm in, I'm in Phoenix. And so the, the difference, uh, again, difference between another pilot job is that I get to sleep in my own bed most nights. <laughs> and that's a pretty big difference, isn't it? It is. And I think, you know, once you, if you compare the two and I've, I've done a lot of different other kinds of flying. And so, yeah, I don't have to, I don't always have to take a suitcase with me when I go to work. That's definitely a nice perk. And I know the Honeywell fleet is actually quite sizable. You have the the Convair 580, which I think is the number two that ever came off the right. line from 1952. Queen of the fleet. Yeah, you have the 757 and you have a couple of other. How big is this fleet these days? Right now in the, in the main Honeywell fleet, I'm, I'm counting, but I think there's eight or nine airplanes. There's two sites... Uh, that we keep the airplanes and operate the airplanes out of both in both in Phoenix. One's at the the main airport here at Sky Harbor, which is where I sit, and then on the north side of town is the Deer Valley Airport. So yeah, at my site we have you mentioned the Convair, we have the the seven fifty seven, we have two King Airs, uh, a B two hundred and a two hundred. We have a, a Saber sixty five, which we're uh, divesting currently or shortly, and we have a Citation five. So all of those aircraft are, well, generally all the airplanes are that we try to modify them to make them be generic test beds. I mean, we have a 757, but we're not necessarily testing stuff that needs to go on a 757 with it, right? We're, it's a test bed that can, can accept anything, anything that we might want to put on it. And then up at the other site, we have a, an Embraer 170, we have a Falcon 900, there's a Pilatus PC-12. We have a an A-Star 350 helicopter. And there's another Kinger up there, a C-90. I think that's all of them. And then we have the Bendix King fleet, which is all of our general aviation to, stuff. If you had to pick one of them as a test pilot, which would it be? I'd have to say the 757. I mean, we've done so much with that airplane, and, and we do. It's uh, it it's, has such a great wide variety of jobs that it can do. Plus, it's uh, as you maybe know, it's a, it's a, it's a sports car. It's got a lot of power. We bought it because it has the kind of uh, power and range that we needed to to do some of the testing. So it's just a joy to f- fly. Second to that, I think the Convair, which, yeah. which provides so such it, a difference <laughs> to the 757. Yeah, I think it's uh, polar opposites there. And with the 7.5, it's not like you're hauling uh, 205 seats around with passengers and bags. So this thing has got to be pretty, pretty light in comparison to pretty much every other 757 in the world. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, and I don't know exactly what they're flying around on, you know, with the, with the weights, but even with our airplane, if it, you know, if we put as much gas as we can put on it, we still have, we, we would still have 20 or a little over 20,000 pounds worth of, of, of room to get to our max takeoff weight. So 
yeah, it's it's got to be a, a lighter, maybe by twenty thousand pounds or so than the other planes that are the other seven fifty sevens that are flying, which yeah gives us a little bit a little bit more performance. Right. So why don't you tell us a little about what you're testing now? You test everything from ground proximity warning systems to Wi-Fi to engines to APUs. What do you have going on these days? Yeah, right now we have, in fact, on the 757, we have installed a turboprop, which is a, you know, an engine. We've, we've actually had a, a test facility, a flight test facility here for over 50 years, you know, starting out with that, uh, basically that engine model, the TP331. This is the first time we've put that engine on the 757, and we're just kind of proving the capability. We don't have anything. I mean, we're we're just proving the capability of testing that on the airplane. But I'm you know I'm working on that today, as well as I'm I'm also uh, working on planning a, a trip to Southeast Asia to do some weather radar testing. All you know, kind of in the same day. So that's the variability of of what we're we're testing. So if I heard you right, you're putting a turboprop on the side of a jet-powered 757. What does that even look like? <laughs> yeah, it looks uh, – well, I think it looks cool. It's pretty fun. If you've seen the pictures of our airplane, it's in the same place that we put a turbofan engine. It just looks a little different, obviously, with the propeller. And it's just like I say, we're, we're just kind of proving that technology at this point or the, or the capability that we have to uh, go out and fly the, the plane with the turboprop on We've put, I think, two flights. Uh, we've done two flights so far, and we're, we, you know, we're just taking like baby step approach to to proving that we can go either so fast or so high, and the maneuverability of the plane with the turboprop on, and those kinds of things. Right. So that turboprop, it's not just spinning in, in the wind. Basically, it is actually turned on and powered and spinning. Right. Yes, it is. How does that impact the flight characteristics of a 757? To me, that just sounds kind of crazy. Well, yeah. It's not quite a barn door out there, but it's a bit like having a barn door <laughs> out there if the, uh, if the, uh, if the engine's uh, you know, back at idle or, or something. The turbofan installation is you know, a little cleaner design, and, and we get that question a lot. You know, how does that airplane operate or fly with, with the engine on the side? And it's it's designed, we, like I said, we've been doing this for a while, so it's designed so that we don't impact the, the operating envelope of the airplane at all. So we can go as high or as fast as the 757 was meant to, and that's on purpose with a, with a turbofan, with a jet engine. And then with the turboprop, I mean, you just wouldn't, you, those, the planes that use the turboprops don't go as high or as fast as a, as a jet, so we don't need to, but we want to prove out how it flies. So yeah, it's, it's a little more, it's basically a little more drag out there than, than the turbofan. So we certainly have to consider that as we're making, you know, doing these flights. Joe, I would love to get back to, you know, we were talking about what you're currently up to, but I'm always curious how people get into the work they do. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you went from, I'm going to become a pilot to, I fly a 757 with engines mounted on the side of them. <laughs> you know, I didn't start out thinking I would want to be a test pilot. I went into the Air Force and, and certainly wanted to be a pilot. And I got to fly C-130s in, in a VIP 707 in the Air Force. And I got out and flew some some Gulfstreams in, in a corporate world and the 707s in a corporate kind of capacity. And, and I was at American Airlines for a while. I got to train as a flight engineer. So I was going, I was riding sideways for a while in a 727. But I think that that diverse you know, kind of background is what helps people or, or helps in the test pilot world. I'm also, when I went to college for it, I'm a software engineer by training. So I've been a bit of a, a bit geeky 
with programming and, and networking and and just being an engineer along the way. So as I got a little older and my, I've, I'd seen some of the things that were done, I, I, I got to um, fly some with MIT Lincoln Laboratories, their flight test facility, as they were bringing on a 707 and got a, a little bit more of, of the taste of the test pilot world. And I think that's what sold it for me. And, and being able to combine the engineering skill and being you know, kind of at the at the leading edge of some of the technology and getting getting to see some of this new stuff and and help develop it and help you know make airplane flying safer and more efficient and and better with all the products that we make. You know, that's what makes it exciting to come to work every day, and that's what I you know I, that's where I that's where I arrived, I guess. You mentioned your your software engineer as well as a pilot, so does that put you in an interesting or kind of a unique position to not just I mean we've talked to to pilots who, you know, just fly the plane. But you're also, I mean, how much work are you doing to to test whatever the, you know, the new weather radar or the the new ground proximity warning system or whatever data links you're working on? How much work are you doing to test those systems as well as to just, you know, fly the plane so that it's up in the air and those tests can happen? Yeah, there's kind of a unique balance, I think, with with how we how you go between that. You can you can kind of think of ourselves and and either 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 we're kind of the end of the line when we're developing a product that it, you know finally gets to us and we finally get to put it on in the airplane or you can maybe also think of us as Honeywell's first customer as we use this stuff so we get to be the the beta tester maybe that's from my software engineering background <laughs> but we have to be maybe one way to put it is flying the airplane has to be kind of the I hesitate to say second nature but you have to be good enough and comfortable enough that 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 you could manage that as well as participate effectively in the test, right? So when we're, you mentioned weather radar, we're going to have to go and do things that pilots don't normally do. We we actually have to fly toward the storms. Uh, we have to, you know, air traffic control doesn't, they're always trying to help us out by helping us get you know, vectors to avoid something. And we're saying, no, 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 we want to go toward this thing. <laughs> So you have to have enough uh, capacity, and I feel like I failed to mention. Of course, there's the the rest of the crew that's helping and and doing all this. The, there's flight test engineers. Of course, there's the other pilot. There's technicians. There's a there's a whole group of people you know that are that are in, involved in any of these flights, right? It's not just a pilot up there or a, or a couple of pilots. We've got a a crew on there that have that have helped from from day one to bring this to fruition. So we've spent a lot of time on the ground trying to get intimate with or, or as intimate as we can with 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 the product that we're testing not certainly not as much as like the systems engineers that divine design and develop the whole thing but enough that we can provide feedback and you know help them make that product that much better and safer and usable even to the point where the maintenance folks you know if we design a new new box that has to go on an airplane and it the when the you have to think about the maintenance folks that have to go maybe go replace or troubleshoot that device. So we're even involved in, in that level where, or at least people in my, you know, the group that works here are involved in that level where we're, you know, maybe in analyzing it from that perspective and helping the design, maybe part of the industrial design part of it or something like that to, to make the product even better and more useful down the road for the, for the end user. So we've talked about what your favorite, planes to fly are, but what are some of the favorite projects that you've worked on and, and how those have kind of either they're coming out now if, if they're recent or or they've you've seen them develop if they're a little bit older? Yeah, there's a couple of that stand out. The, some of my favorite projects, we just did the SATCOM 
with our JetWave system that provides high-speed internet. And so we were, with our 757, we were the first fuselage-mounted antenna of, of, you know, so we had the first airborne terminal for that product ever. So anytime we're, you know, this job, anytime we're at the beginning of, I'll say the beginning of time within one of these products, that's, you know, that's that's the exciting, some of the more exciting stuff that we do, even if it's, I mean, we're, we have to go up and test SATCOM. So that just means I probably have to go fly in some airspace, but, you know, just to see it work and, and mature and become a, a great product that it is, I feel like we've really accomplished and, and done our job to, to make that thing, uh, that, that product robust and make it work well. Some of the other exciting stuff is like weather radar, where we've, like I mentioned, we've, we have to go fly toward storms to make sure that the, the systems, you know, correctly seeing and then displaying what, what a pilot needs to see in the front. We, we actually had to go fly, and we've done this in both the Convair and the 757, we, we go fly into wind shear conditions because we're, you know, the weather radar does some, it has predictive wind shear in it, and we have to ensure that what we're predicting was there so it's accurate. So we're doing that down in the, somewhere like the Everglades where it's flat, and we can find a, an isolated storm that we might, go through and you know we're not doing it at approach speed or anything like that we've we've mitigated all the risk we can we've we've thought about this but it's pretty exciting to be down there you know kind of pointing at a storm and actually experiencing some wind shear that again some pilots don't would avoid by by miles or days would, would rather not fly through right i would say the ground proximity warning test we did when i was on the convoy with you guys was uh, as a typical passenger was kind of amazing i'm sitting there in the seat watching the screen slowly fill up with yellow and then a bit of red and then we're getting bounced around in the thermals with all the turbulence out in phoenix in the middle of the summer and there there's the mountain right where the computer said it would be and thankfully we uh we turned and went a different direction but i think we also played around with tcas a bit so seeing all this other traffic all on the monitor around us on this little conveyor which is kind of amazing but the the stuff that you guys test out on these aircraft is just kind of mind-blowing yeah it's i mean it is a lot of fun like i said we have we get to be a part of these you know products and you know you, you talk about tcas you talk about ground procs obviously those are huge influences in the in the safety of of aviation i mean we've virtually eliminated you know controlled flight into terrain with the ground proc system so to have that legacy and to have that product out there and to know that it's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing is, is pretty satisfying you know when you're a part of that and the development and maturing of that product. Joe, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's It's been a real pleasure talking to you about what you've been working on and, and hearing about. Let me ask you one last question. How many pilots are with you in, in your test group? We have six pilots here. There's about, I think there's, uh, well, there's 12 or 15 in total with, with the two sites, but there's a whole group of uh, test engineers and, and mechanics and technicians and we have a quality department, so there's a there's a larger group that uh, you know that work together here to make the uh, the whole thing work. So so dozens of people they get to see the the first draft of some really cool technology. We've been speaking with Joe Duvall, the chief test pilot for Honeywell Aerospace. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate talking to you. Oh, thank you guys. Thanks. It was fun. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Joe. And we are back to France, actually, with Jason and, and John. And that was that was a fun conversation with Joe. Jason, I know you've been able to fly with him. Uh, John, have you ever flown with the Honeywell folks? I have not. Yes, I really want to. 
Look, I yeah, won't, I, I won't I say, almost had the chance. I won't say that flying in old Convair in the middle of an Arizona summer day after eating questionable Chinese food is a good idea, but it sure was fun. I have a half flown one of those in revenue service. What? Yeah. Between Wellington and the Chatham Islands in New Zealand. Oh, of course, New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Air Chatham still operates. I, I, I believe they still operate. Those old conveyors. Um, I can't remember what the number is that they have. The, the number of the conveyors changed from like 240 to 340 or 540 or something, yeah, yeah. depending on the, whether they have the old Allison engines on. But that was a great trip. It, all the stuff they do at Honeywell, with, what we tested was the EGPWS and the OMG and the, yeah and all the abbreviations you can imagine. It, yeah. it was a ton of fun and terrain, and, yeah, terrain. Exactly. We we predicted the terrain and we we drove around it, which is as you can tell by the fact that he is still here. Yes, it was a good good day. So we've got some some breaking news. We're recording on uh, Tuesday, the eighth of May. And we have some breaking news. The New York Times, among others, is reporting that President Trump has said that the U.S. will withdraw from the the Iran nuclear deal, which has some effect on on aviation in the sense that it puts Iran Air's very large, well, relatively yeah, large. I mean, these days, it's order a big for order. Boeing jets in, in jeopardy. It's what is it? A hundred or eighty aircraft, fifty seven three sevens, and thirty triple sevens. Uh, for Iran Air, and then an additional 30 firm plus 30 options for uh, Asaman Airlines and the 737 MAX. Yeah, that's a very useful order for Boeing, particularly the 777s, right? I mean, it's the same sort of thing as Lufthansa. Um, Boeing needs to fill that gap between what they're currently building and what they're going to start building with the 777X. Uh, particularly if, you know, heaven forfend, there might be some sort of engine issue with the production of a re-engine airliner. That, that doesn't sound likely at all. There's precedent for that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, and it's particularly interesting given how close Boeing has played it in supporting the current US regime. I think that, uh, well, I was going to say Seattle, but it's really Chicago. There'll be some a little egg on some faces in Seattle and Chicago today about having perhaps compromise some of the principles of a modern forward-thinking international company in the hope of being thrown a few bones from the current occupant of the White House. So who will take those planes now? That's the next question. They won't build them. That's my question. I mean, you know, with that 777 order, I mean, the 737 order is, and Jason, I think you said this earlier, you know, that's absorbable. Yeah, the 73 sure. is they're sure. going to fly somewhere. Doesn't matter where they go, though. They will either end up slowing the line or it would be rather amusing if they went to Delta, say. I was thinking the same exact thing. Delta, obviously, not an operator presently of the 777-300ER. Um, they have 200 LRs, which and are. ERs. Uh, and ERs, but, but Boeing isn't presently producing ERs in the 200 model. Uh, could they go to Delta? Sure. I, mean, I bet Delta would, would love a. They could go to United American. They both operate them. Exactly. I'm sure that British Airways also would be interested in some some late model 7700ERs, perhaps an, uh, an opportunity to retire some of those 747-400s earlier at, an, at a nice price. As someone who's booked on two of them later this year, yes, please. <laughs> you know, look, I think that all of us present and most of our listeners jump at the chance to fly a 747 just for the 747 factor. But they're getting long in the proverbial tooth. And a new plane is, is often welcome, shall we say. We will continue to see how this shakes out, whether or not any of those orders actually get through and, and how it all is absorbed or, or mitigated by Boeing. But you know, some late breaking news, I guess, as, as we finish up our recording. 
Speaking of old planes, though, I'm sorry, I, Virgin I think America, you mean brilliant planes. Stay, stay calm, John. Stay wonderful, calm. beautiful planes with the right number of engines and for, the right proportion. For, for those that, that may not know, John Walton here has an odd fascination and. and some may say unhealthy love of the Airbus A340 600. Yes, it is. It is the ideal plane. It is a perfectly proportioned aircraft. This thing of beauty and joy. We're sensing a lot of themes in this particular episode. One is uh, older planes, newer planes, and engine issues with newer planes because we're dealing with engine issues with the Rolls Royce Trent 1000 on the 787s. So Virgin Atlantic, which is a customer of the, the 787 with engine issues, has been working on ways to mitigate that. A few of the ways is taking old Air Berlin A330s, and another way is putting old A340s back into service. And so Virgin this week decided to take an old A340 that they had retired two months ago, pull it out of Tupelo, Mississippi. Which apparently never happens. And fly it to Manila to get it back into shape so that they can fly it back to London and put it into service well, while they're waiting for all of these Trent issues. So, but although, look, I, so it, it must be very difficult for Virgin in terms of, of, of figuring out how that works. But it is a little ironic for me from a passenger experience point of view that they bring these older aircraft which were not upgraded with the latest uh, anything refurbished seats service all of that sort of thing that that first one that they painted with a big Virgin Atlantic thank you to the staff um, and then anyone on that plane had the staff apologizing to them for the fact that basically nothing really worked properly I love the look of those aircraft internally they could do with a little bit of a refurb shall we say but it, the, all these airlines who are having these 787 Rolls Royce issues are having to scramble to fix them Air New Zealand is is going high fly. Um, they're also looking to, I believe they said today, they're looking to lease a triple seven two hundred ER on on a long term basis. Now that's that's a product consistency issue, right? If if you book Air New Zealand, you expect to get Air New Zealand, and they have been very consistent in the product that they offer. And I suppose that Norwegian has this going for them in that when you book Norwegian, you don't necessarily expect to fly in a Norwegian plane. Not if you're listening to this podcast, you don't. Oh, of course. And I feel like anyone who's listened to more than three or four episodes of this podcast knows that it's a 50-50 shot maybe whether or not you'll be, actually be on Maybe it will be high uh, Norwegian Maybe plane. it will be Euro-Atlantic. Maybe it will be privilege style. Maybe it will be nothing at all. And this style. week, the, the privilege style 777 got a full season of service. I forget exactly which route it was, it's, but uh, instead Rome of having to Newark, a I believe. Rome to Newark, so so instead of having a, a Norwegian brand new seven eight seven, you get a middle aged triple seven from Privilege Style. So I mean, it's it's one of those things where we continue to talk about how airlines are are doing this, and it's got to be a terrible position to be in. And, and I would hate to be any airline that says we're going to have these brand new planes and then they don't work. But then, you know, how how do you mitigate that? And and the answer, I guess, is that that high fly, and we talked about this before. High fly becomes the ultimate winner in well, all of this. They, they just got two brand new A330s delivered, didn't they? About to be delivered. Uh, about to be, delivered. yes, uh, right yes, up the road. Yes. I think it's, 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 it's this week. But but yeah, I, it's I feel that it seems like this is happening a lot at the moment because we have a lot of re-engineering going on. We have a lot of we, we have fewer people making engines, so fewer companies making engines, and so any impact is naturally going to be greater. Right, because more of the world's fleet operates engine type X. If engine type X has 50% of the market, where in previous generations it had 25. You look back to the Lockheed L1011, 
you know, those were also any issues that they had where, what was it, couldn't take sand? They flew it to, to Saudi Arabia to try and try try the sort of getting to sand intake, and it glassed the engine. You know, that almost bankrupted Lockheed. It's why Lockheed hasn't um, created a passenger airline since the L-1011. It caused huge corporate issues for roles, if memory serves, with some sort of government bailout. So it's not, this is nothing new in aviation. Yeah, it's not a new issue. It's just a crappy issue to have. Yeah, and, and it seems like it's happening a lot because we are in... And, and you guys have talked about this with, with I believe, John Ostra, is that there's... That point, of, we've got a lot of planes that have been delivered as new recently and are now in their teething problem phase. Yeah, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing teething problems with these engines, and it's it's a frustration if you're a passenger. I'm not sure it would be cause for me to book for or away anywhere at present. Or away from Norwegian. Well, yes, but that's not really any change, is it? No. Um, I mean, know, the airline literally started without its own plane. Right. What's in the back of that privileged style 777? Do you know, Jason? Crap. <laughs> I mean, is it 10 abreast, charter? No, I think, it, I think it's 9 abreast. It used to belong well, to um, uh, El Al, I think. El, either El Al or Asiana or something. Right. But it hasn't been well maintained. But, you know, if in terms of pure passenger comfort, you know, bring your iPad, bring your phone, download yourself some Netflix. It's, at the very least, it's a passenger experience neutral. Yeah, it's also compounded by the fact that I think that today fleets are so so narrow. You're either on if you're talking about new aircraft, you're either on a new Airbus or a new mm-hmm. Boeing. And any of those new Airbus or, or you're flying Delta. Right. Or gonna have the same issues as they're right. all a new aircraft off the line yeah. as opposed to in past decades where you had multiple airframers all creating multiple products. They don't exist anymore. You have yeah. A or B. Yeah. Pick your poison. Right. And you know, every anytime anyone tries to make a C Bombardier, they, they, they come back into A and B. And this is, and look, not to get too inside baseball in um, in terms of the way that this industry works, but this is a big problem of the, of the over-consolidation in the industry, is that there's too many A or B options rather than A, B, C, D, or E options. Stay strong, Ember year. Yeah, stay the course. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the E in this model, isn't it? But yeah, it's a long-term issue to be in a duopoly situation simply because you end up in this situation. Well, as you guys were talking about recently, the entire problem of the uh, that CFM issue with the 737 is that half of the 737 fleet in the world is operating as engines right now. And if there are issues in terms of being able to operate, that's a huge impact and one that I don't think there's a capacity to fix in the same way that there was perhaps in previous years when you could swap in an MD-80 or uh, some other sort of aircraft to make that change. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the thing that I keep thinking about with the CFM engine issues. That, you know, If there was something that had grounded the fleet or if there's something that comes out and grounds the A320 fleet or the 777 fleet I mean, you know, or a large segment of any of these – I mean, that's going to be a huge impact that I don't see how that's absorbable. I, I don't either. I think the slight answer to that is probably around leasing companies keeping things on sort of warm readiness, where rather than it being a sort of three or four month call up of something that's parked, it's a three or four week call up. I think there's something around that, that if I were working in a leasing company that I would be doing right now. But yeah, it, it is a huge problem and it's one that's not going to get any better. And I don't have an answer to that. I don't know that there is a solution to to what happens when you get over reliant on a, on a small number of, of suppliers. 
And on that thoroughly cheery note, we, we go I'm to going visit to Comac 929. <laughs> I'm going to let you two gentlemen get back to your, your wine, your cheese, your goats, and your chickens. And we will say you goodbye know, for a, now. There is actually a phrase in France, revenons à nos moutons, which means let's get back to the subject. Let's get back to our sheep. Well, then. What he said. I think we found our title for the episode. John, I want to say thank you for hosting Jason and getting him to the microphone today. And, and thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure. Where can we find you, John? Well, you can find me on Twitter at ThatJohn. You can find my writing at Runway Girl Network. I'm always excited to talk to people about aircraft, particularly lovers of the A340-600, the most beautiful plane in the skies. All two of you will be so thrilled to find each other. Your face will be so thrilled, Jason Rabinowitz. And yes, uh, love, to, love to chat about planes and aircraft and flying. So, uh, Gentlemen, enjoy the rest of your time, and we will talk to you all in a few weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.